You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Archaeology and L podcast. For those of you new to our podcast, Archaeology and L is a monthly talk held upstairs at the Red Deer Pub at Pitt Street in Sheffield, provided by Archaeology in the City, an outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Archaeology Department. This month we are presenting the history and development of the Horseman Works Green Lane and Kellum Island, Sheffield, with guest speaker Phil Roberts. Please view the show notes for more information about our podcast and the guest speaker. Thank you. Okay, hi, my name's Phil um, from Elmit Archaeology Services based um, just outside Rotherham, mainly a sort of community-based unit that runs a lot of projects to get um, people with depression and members of the public involved in archaeology and things like that. Um, but we also do a bit of commercial work, which is um, where this comes from, which is basically the horseman works down on Green Lane in Kelham Island. Everyone's archaeologist, so I'm assuming you all like beer and therefore you probably <laughs> know Kelham Island. <laughs> I don't have a point of but that building there is Fat Cat Pool. So that's what I'm using as a reference. Um, and that's from the 1950s, but that's basically the works as it stood on the 1950s. And obviously if you've been down there recently, it's now all behind hoarding and there's some houses gone up. But that's basically what it used to look like. So we're going to just talk about the history, the development of it, and then some of the archaeology that Elmet have done in 2013 and 14, and what we're hopefully going to be doing in the future, which all depends on the developer which is anyone knows, could be at some point in the future, possibly maybe. So what we're going to talk about is why industrial archaeology is important, because a lot of people tend to kind of think it's not, because obviously it's so recent. I think. Um, just a brief general history of the Kellam Island area, to put it into context. Um, we're going to talk about the development of the site from the 18th century to the modern day, then about our excavations, and the future work, and then there'll be a bit of time for questions and answers. So, but it isn't really archaeology, is it? I started 10 years ago working for Arcus at Sheffield University, just at Westcourt. I think it's um, part of the department now. And we dug all around Sheffield, and one of the most common questions was they'd see red brick walls, or they'd, they'd say, oh, that was just standing when I was a kid. And they'd say, it's not really archaeology. But it really is. Um, because it's only a few hundred years old and we have access to so many different sources such as photographs, maps, catalogues, um, trade directories, newspaper articles, often you can get a map plan, you can get photographs of it, you, you, you know, as an aerial photographer. And so the question is why bother excavating it? You know, if you've already got that. It's not like something like Iron Age or Rome where you don't know what it looked like. You've often got photos or there might even be people alive who can tell you what it looked, what it actually was like inside. So why bother excavating it? Well, the documents discuss the buildings but don't really talk about the people. 
and that's really at the core of most archaeology is to find out about the people, how they lived. So excavation allows us to discover more about the everyday lives of the people, how they, where they lived, where they worked, the kind of pottery, things like that. It's not about gold and treasure and kings and queens. I wrote this originally shortly after Richard III <laughs> thing and, and everyone thinks we're treasure hunters trying to find kings and then I think after that people were talking about trying to find King Alfred as well. So it was almost like treasure hunt, find car parks and find kings. <laughs> but it's not, it's about just ordinary people quite often and often certainly in history they get missed because no, a lot of the time historical sources don't talk about them. And also this period is probably more relevant to today and to people in Sheffield than prehistory because it connects very firmly. If you're local to Sheffield or to any other industrial town, it's likely that you had relatives, grandparents or great-grandparents working in steelworks or industrial buildings. I know a lot of my granddad's family were in steelworks at the turn of the century. So it's a lot more relevant and also in many ways, the Industrial Revolution is kind of the pre it's the creator of the modern world we live in today. So in many ways, it's a lot more relevant than something like roundhouses or something. Um, it's not more or less important, but it's, it's kind of more relevant and it can kind of connect with people a bit more because it's something that they can sort of see and touch a bit more and understand a bit more easily. And then along with other excavations that were carried out in Sheffield that haven't been done in a long time, actually, it does help paint a picture of the fire and steel, as you like that way, which helped drive the Industrial Revolution. And, and that's obviously, you know, it's part of the boom of the North, where Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, were all, and Bradford, Nottingham, all these industrial cities, whatever area they were involved in, whether it be steel or trade or textiles, were booming, and a lot of money came into the cities. And basically, ignore the word industrial. It's historical archaeology. And industrial can have a lot of negative kind of connotations with it. People think it's just boring or it's, you know, quite dull. It's, it's, I was saying to Martin, I'd say it's not much farm, is it? We don't have Bronze Age wheels or anything like that. So it's not quite as um, sexy, I suppose. This is basically an outline of the site today. Obviously, that is all knocked down. But again, you can just see that little building just outside the red area, which is the Fat Cat. Um, Green Lane. The Green Lane works, which is still standing and it's got the big listed and um, clock tower and entrance way that you can see still from the road. That's where I'll be talking about that a little bit later because we'll be digging there later. That's still standing just on the left hand side, but basically it covered up, it covered quite a large area just in front of where the museum stands today. There's been, they don't, um, when they're expanding, it, it happens incredibly quickly. If you're digging, I mean, I came straight out of uni to dig and I dug urban industrial and you can learn a hell of a lot because you'll be doing deep stratigraphy and incredibly complex stratigraphy because they just build on top of each other. They don't care. Victorians just <laughs> smash things and then rebuild and smash some more things. So the history of Kellam Island, it is an important area in Sheffield. Basically, Doncaster and Rotherham are the big centres in Roman and medieval times and Sheffield's relatively unimportant. But um, the Kellam Island area dates from about 1180s um, and they built a mill race which created the island itself to carry water from the Don to the corn mill near Ladies Bridge which is sort of, oh I've not got a map on but yeah it's Ladies Bridge it's down and um, a lot of the site isn't very well known but in 1637 the town armourer Kellum Homer 
set up a grinding workshop and a water mill on the island. So originally the water mill there is um, called Kellum Wheel, got a map later on, it's still marked. But by the 19th century the name changed, the island had been given the same name so basically it became very heavily associated with this Kellum Homer who is obviously the town armourer, I think he's in the employ of um, the Duke of Norfolk who owned a, a lot of the land in Sheffield. By 1829, Kelham Works were established, manufacturing bicycles and corn grinders and lawnmowers, a lot of agricultural and kind of utilitarian equipment. And then by 1890, the city had bought the site and built an electricity generating station for the new tram system. And then it comes home with the Kelham Island Museum, which you can go down and see today, I'm sure many of you have. And basically you can just see it, you know, it, it's, because, it's been an industrial area for most of its site of, of one kind or another. Um, and so it's kind of very important when you're talking about Sheffield being an industrial city to kind of consider just how important Kelham Island was in that area, in that sort of aspect. So this is um, the 1736 map of Sheffield and as you can see there is nothing there. Um, I'll just, can everyone see? That is Kelham Wheel. So that's the wheel that Kelham Homer built right there. I'll just feel that with you. Sorry? There was a coal mill there before. Yeah. I, I'm one of the directors of Whippledown Walk and that's uh -huh. part of our walk. So we've done research the last 20 years. The coal mill was there before Callum Homer was there. Mm. Right. And that is Hallam, not Callum. Ah. <laughs> it's basically, it's, it's just, um, that is, I think uh, that's it, the it, earliest it, map it, we've it, managed to find. I know, well, I've got several. And they all say Hallam. Ah, right. And this is where people get confused. So it's the K, yeah. It's actually called Callum. And there was three different Callums, right? All different, in the same family. The armourer was called Callum. And he was released from the castle when the, um, when we had the uh, Civil War. And he was the only person to be released, uh, released under order of Parliament. And it said that uh, he was to be released and unmolested and go anywhere he wanted in the city. Uh, so that's where he starts from. Yeah. So yeah, so as you can see, there's not much going on. Um, and that's true for Sheffield as a whole, really. It's not particularly important until sort of the industrial, well, until sort of the 1800 period, when we start getting into um, mechanisation of things and industrialisation of things, when you realise you've got seven hills and five rivers and they can power all the mills and things like that and all of a sudden it starts growing the horseman works itself we call it the horseman works because that's basically its name the last name it had it does go through several different names but and we will be confusing you all by mentioning <laughs> a lot of those so the historic map evidence that we uncovered when we were doing the um, desk assessment shows that the site of the Horseman Works was uninhabited until about the 1820s to 1830s. So you, you are basically talking about 150 years of activity and there's an awful lot that goes on. Much of the land was owned by the Duke of Norfolk, basically for pasture and arable based farming. There's still activity present in the area. There was silk and later cotton mills and a grinding wheel located to the west and the Callum wheel is also noted on the earliest maps to the north of the site. So again, 1771, you can see it's expanded a bit more. The the black area, the area we've marked out in black, I'll just get in, 
is um, our site. The silk mill that we mentioned is, is being built there. The wheel, Helm or Kelm wheel, is still standing. And just so people see, that's where the castle is, right there. Which obviously they may be digging up if ever the council decide to. And this is 1830s, really the earliest evidence we've got in terms of maps for things going on. So we begin to see the western end of the site getting developed. The eastern end is still pretty sparse. We think what we've got is small scale industrial buildings or like little my um, little meisters, I think they are. And basically they're they're little workshops centered around a central courtyard. Everyone's got a workshop. Everyone's doing whatever it is they're doing, cutlery, whatever. But it's relatively small scale, not really centralised, everyone's working pretty much it's almost like subsistence. You know, they're doing just enough to keep themselves busy, just enough to make themselves a little bit of profit, but there's no great single works or anything, no major industrial. And we've also think we've got some domestic dwellings because um, just on the very western side, north is top of screen, um, there's uh, just two buildings just onto the road, like in a little zigzag. And we've excavated them and one of, one of those is a house, so we think that they're domestic dwellings. Possibly for people who work in those workshops, but not quite tell. After this period, we do begin to see that creation of more centralised industrial buildings. And we, we basically get the Eagle Works by 1835. Um, it's been built for Charles and Samuel Peace. And the rate book, which is kind of, um, it's used basically to calculate, calculate tax. I think. So it's, they'll go to your place of work, they'll see what you've got, and then they'll go, well, that's how much that's worth, that's how much you get in tax. And it's got an iron house, a cellar, a steel furnace, 12 double pot and cellar, a coke shed and a steel house. So you can see that they're making steel. We're now getting into sort of less the little cottage industries, I suppose you could say, and more into a big central industrialised um, companies, really, making large scale work. By 1837, it's expanded. So it's expanded in two years, so that goes to what I was saying earlier about just how much and how busy they get on and they just expand and expand and they're rebuilding and remodelling. So you've now got a weighing machine, offices, shops, coke sheds, file shops, um, a converting furnace, double earths, iron houses again, um, and cast steel furnace, coke shed, um, hearth and a dwelling. So it's again it's expanding, they're making they're probably making steel itself on site rather than getting it in and um, then processing it. And they seem to be involved in pretty much everything. You've got file shops there, you know, converting furnaces, probably maybe making iron and steel, maybe messing about, you know, but it's also the technology is changing a lot. By 1837, it lists Charles and Samuel Peace and Co. Eagle Works at Russell Street under steel converters and refiners and also scythe, hay and straw knife manufacturers. They're also making, they're converting the steel, they're refining it and they're also turning that into goods to be sold. And it's all um, sort of agricultural stuff as well that they're doing at the minute. And this is the first evidence that like steel refining and converting was taking place on that side. So by 1853, if you think 1832 there's nothing there, by 1853 it's just exploded. Um, I'll just get in everyone's way again. Um, 
So the eagle works I was talking about um, on the eastern edge, and it's basically this large set of buildings centered around a courtyard. We've then got these series of workshops, and these are the houses that I was pointing out earlier. They're far more detailed there, and actually what we found on the ground actually matches this plan almost exactly. And then just outside the study area is the Green Lane Works, where the um, entrance and the clock tower is, which is where we'll be going later on. So by 1853, there's a new building layout. They've um, built more roads and changed that layout to make it easier to get around. It comprises a number of small workshops um, outside the Eagle Works to the west, and probable domestic structures for people, whether those people are working and living um, basically in the same place, we don't know. I wouldn't really want to, but <laughs> this is a Victorian era, so, and they're just poor workers, so they probably made it. And then further expansion started, at, um, carried on at the Eagle Works, and it just keeps on growing for most of like the mid-19th century. It keeps on expanding, it keeps on growing. I won't, I mean, I think we've got a grinding wheel now, which is quite important because we do, we've found that on site. Um, warehouses, workshops, engine house, boiler seatings, and we've got some boiler bases. And it had changed names again to WK Peace and Co. So people are kind of buying in and, and selling it off. And, and so in the space of 20 or 30 years, it's expanded two or three times. People are coming in and investing in it and taking it over and, and other people are leaving. So there's a huge amount of activity that goes on an incredibly small period of time. And then by 1864, the Peace family have left completely. So they've only been there for about 30 years. And they've gone down to Mowbray Street in Sheffield and it's renamed the Globe Steelworks under Ibbotson and Ibbotson Brothers and Co. So within 30 years, they've gone, they've moved their works elsewhere, they've sold up, it's been renamed and it's gone under new ownership. Even though, looking at it and looking at the expansion, you'd think they're doing pretty well. You know, they've got nothing to talk about, but whether or not um, their works on Mowbray Street were better, bigger, more modern, you know, we don't know. One of the reasons that things changed at that point was that steel was coming in from mm. Sweden. Uh, we were no longer digging ore out. Mm. The raw product was coming from Sweden. Uh, so we've got the raw product and we made it because they've got higher carbon uh, figure and that made the difference. All they got to do was process it. Yeah. Right, and that's why the development happened in that area. Because we've got railways and then the barges and on a good day, there were 10 barges a day coming to Sheffield from Sweden. It was phenomenal. There's photographs of the, the barges still coming in. Yeah. It's, uh, they were bringing hundreds of thousands of tons a week of steel into Sheffield to be made into a product from Sweden. So um, we've got a, kind of mentioned the Great Sheffield Flood of 1864, mainly because it did have, it directly affected um, not just the works but the people living there. Um, if anyone's been down Fat Cat on the front, there's uh, the measures of how high it was. There's a recent floods in 2007, and then the 1864, about a metre higher. Um, this is Neepsend Lane, which is just down the river to the west. Um, just showing how the buildings, the front of the buildings facing onto the river, were just ripped off. There are no photos that I could find from actual the, the actual site of the Horseman Works. So basically, um, on the 11th of March, 1864, the Dale Dam burst due to stormy weather, and approximately 650 million gallons of water rushed down the Rocks Loxley Valley towards Sheffield. In and around the site, about 164 dwellings were destroyed or damaged, 
eight workshops and warehouses, five manufacturing tilts, five breweries, eight shops were all either damaged or destroyed. The Globe Steelworks was damaged um, itself. The water got into an underground hot air flue, which exploded. And then six people from Longcroft at the Western Age site were known to have died from the records, and they were aged from four to 32 years old. So they were, so I think two of them were children. I'm not sure if they weren't from the same family, actually. But yeah, so basically, I mean, the flood affected all of that area. And um, we've not found any archaeology, archaeological evidence for that, for the flood itself, whether or not any rebuilding can be dated to that period. But we know that um, it was heavily damaged, and you know how big an explosion it was, you don't know. But I mean, it's going to be pretty impressive, I think, and pretty damaging. So, Ibbotson Brothers at the Globe Works are listed by 1883 as um, manufacturers of steels and saws, steel and saws rather. And then the full extent of the Globe Steelworks, which is its basically its maximum growth before it gets taken over, is shown on the 1890 map, which I think I've got next. Um, we've also got cutlery works down there, the Albion cutlery work done by John, John Coe and Co. And then there's a Longcroft works to the west, and basically, you know, it's developing and it's moving into cutlery, which obviously what Sheffield famous for. In 1903, Globe Steelworks expanded to cover most of the site of the present-day Horseman Works. So what becomes the Horseman Works, it's, the Globe Steelworks subsumes everything. There's still some small structures and houses and workshops fronting onto Green Lane, and there's still some very small-scale tradesmen listed in trade directories. And then by 1930, all these small structures have been demolished and it just it's subsumed under Globe Steelworks and they expand to cover the entire site, which is what we kind of see there. So you've got to the top left-hand corner the Longcroft Works, and then below that we've got the Albion Cutlery Works centered around a courtyard, and then the entire east end of the site is the Globe Steelworks and I think the Fat Cat's down in the corner, the Almer Hotel. That is, I mean, and basically now the road layout and everything, that's pretty much as it is today, really. And so it should be, it is pretty from pretty much the same actually. Cotton Mill Walk's still there. Well, Alma Street yeah. was built to facilitate the access, because mm. there was no good access to that area at all. No. So Alma Street came when the production started because you've got them through little side streets to get you yeah. connected and all. So that's how Alma Street was built. There's a 1903, so it expands again, takes over all that Longcroft works. Albion is still there, um, although it's not noted on the map but still the same buildings and the same structure and you've got green lane up on the left so basically i mean this is coming towards the end now by 1948 it's purchased by tyzak family which still make the trails all the all the trademarks and these were added to tyzak's horseman brand and that's why it's called the horseman works and that's why we refer to it it's the last it's the last name for the thing even though it's called eagle and globe it's the last the horseman works is its final name they're still, despite it being a hundred years later, they're still basically making agricultural equipment. Plough discs, ha harrow discs, cultivated parts. Sorry? What about they doing that? Um, in, in the horseman works, they're still making the, the agricultural um, okay. equipment. So they've been doing it since the beginning when they started making um, sides. Mm -hmm. They're still sort of concentrating on this agricultural aspect. Mid to late 20th century, many parts of the works fell into disrepair. There were a lot of demolitions, 
between 18, 1980 and 2000, and by 1985, the Tyzak company was still at the works, but had changed to the manufacture of motor vehicle pressings and agricultural pressings. And then by 2007, it's all closed down. And that's late in 1955, so that's its fullest extent, really, when it is purely the horse and work. It's all one single um, entity, and that's 1955, and that's probably just before the decline starts. And now we get on to the more exciting stuff, or well, more interesting stuff, which is actual excavations rather than just yeah, lecture on history. Yeah, so in 2013 we carried out an excavation on a 15 by 15 metre square area in the northeast corner of the site. And um, these excavations revealed the extensive remains of um, cementation furnaces dating to the mid-19th century, probably belonging to the Eagle Works, built in 1834 to the Peace Brothers, that first phase of industrial activity. And then evidence suggests that the furnace fell out of use in the 1860s, around the time when the Bessemer process is coming in. Although Sheffield produced 90% of steel in Britain in 1843 via cementation furnaces, Bessemer was more efficient and newer, and as a result, many cementation furnaces fell out of use by the 1870s. But they brought them back during the Second World War. Yeah. There's still use it. The Stamcasters was used during the There's, um, I think the last one, or at least the last one in Sheffield, was using something like the 50s. Yeah. I think it was lit in the 50s. We, we did a little booklet, booklet called the Furnace Trail, that's round Calabar. And Doncasters were still going during the war because they've got a flap on uh, the top to stop the. Uh, There's one in Sheffield as well, still standing, yeah. that's got one. So, so the, yeah. uh, the aeroplanes that were dropping bombs couldn't see the. Um, so that's basically um, a plan of the cementation furnace. So we've got two. There's this one here, which is truncated sort of on its western side, and this one, which we've got far more of, um, and it's structured at the back. This one doesn't survive as well, basically being truncated a bit. But basically they're the two cementation furnaces sort of planned in drawing. Here we go again. It's a terrible photo because there's shadow in it. But basically what you've got is you've got the flue. It's all made out of brick and stone and um, sandstone blocks. We think we've got the bottom part of it. You'll see on the photo, um, we've got a photo of a full one. So basically this big almost beehive type thing. An old fashioned beehive rather. Um, and we've basically just got the very bottom of it because they basically demolished it and destroyed it all. And then that's the other one that's um, sort of less preserved. And again, we've just got the bottom part of it. So the cementation process itself, it was also called the converting or conversion process. So alternate layers of iron bars and crushed charcoal were packed into large stone chests and then they were um, sealed by a thick layer of refractory paste which is just a waste product of uh, cutlery and tool grinding. It's a bit, well no, um, it's, it's a, we call it swarf, it's like the, as you grind in a cutlery, um, a knife, you get these little horrible bits. And it all gets into a kind of a horribly sticky the grinding spots. Yeah. Make they go solid. Yeah. And you can break them down and use them again. Yeah. Sheffield has still got one piece of history left and it's outside Colin Miles' factory opposite the museum, Calamar Museum. And it looks like a piece of stone. And it's where they used to grind inside and the sparks went outside and made a pyramid. Mm -hmm. right. And they were all the way along the river at one time. That's it's the only one left in Sheffield. Keep having to cut all the bushes off it, so it was it was really good solid stuff that you could mix in 
Um, it'd be heated to about 1100 degrees in order to harden the paste. And then when the furnace was at full operating temperature, the iron would begin to absorb the carbon. And then once that had happened, you've got steel. The big problem with it is the firing times, because it's anywhere between five and eight days. And that doesn't include a period of about 24, 36 hours to bring it up to temperature, and then about a week for, to let it cool down. So, you'd do, so in order to do this, you basically, it's nearly, it's probably two weeks, just over. So you can imagine just how much fuel you're needing to use, how much time you're spending, and just how many sanitation furnaces you need in order to make any kind of large-scale amount of steel. So yeah, so that's a sanitation furnace in Sheffield, which is still standing. It's like um, you were saying about the, the lid on the top, that's, that's the white thing. That's Daniel Doncaster's that. That's the white thing on the top. It is listed, it is still standing. And then just to the right, it's just, um, so that's what I meant by the beehive. So basically we've probably got just the very bottom of it. And then to the right is a very sort of schematic plan of what a cementation furnace looks like. So then in 2014 we returned on next phase of their construction and we did two more trenches, um, just on the, just to the south, sorry, west of where the cementation furnaces were found. So Trench 1 uncovered a series of structures, both domestic and industrial, stretching from the 19th century to the middle part of the 20th century. They included the remains of a red brick house from a row of back-to-back um, -back terraces that would have fronted onto Green Lane. And then to the north of this, two buildings and a cobbled yard surface relating to what we think is a grinding wheel and a workshop for the production of cutlery. We think they were making bone knife. Um, we think that they were not just making the blades, but we also found some bone knife handles, blend, one of which may have been ivory. So we think that they're making the cutlery in the grinding shop. It's going over to a workshop, which is just across the way, and then they're turning it into cutlery. These were later truncated by two large red brick bases, which are basically for Lancashire boilers, um, probably in use during the 19th century. And then right down the middle, which is probably the later part, we think we've got three concrete pickling troughs. Basically what that is, is when you're hot working, you leave residue on metal and it's like a, a thin layer of impurities. And what they used to do is they used to call, create something called a pickle liquor made out of acid. They used to dip the metal in there and it used to get rid of the impurities. So this is um, Trench 1. Um, it's the western half of it looking across. And what we've got is just where the ranging rods are, we've got a cobbled yard surface, the remains of it. And then just behind that, we've got one of the Lancashire boiler bases. And then this concrete trough that you just see in the bottom right-hand corner, there you pickling troughs where they cleaned up the metal and removed all impurities. And then this is just the right and the eastern side of it. And we've got a far bigger surviving fragment of boiler base. We think there's just either side of the ranging poles, we've got some metal rods which we think we just use for kind of support and reinforcement. I think it might be a house or the remains of a house. It could be a small workshop. It's been truncated and demolished. Well, it's been truncated by the boiler base and it seems likely that when that was put in, that house was demolished. And just behind it, we've got a better photo. But just behind the boiler base, we've got the remains of a grinding workshop for grinding cutlery. So that's what basic Lancashire boilers would look like. That's the left-hand side is at the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester. The right-hand side is um, actually in situ in the Eagle Works. It's a photo from there. 
And these were just boilers used to power anything. There's um, newspaper articles in Sheffield of boilers being used to power grinding wheels, so they're used to power the wheel itself. But they were basically being used to power any kind of steam-powered machinery that you needed. And this is the grinding wheel. There is very little of it surviving. Basically, um, we're facing away from the boiler base, but the boiler base basically just smashes straight through it and destroys half of it. But we think what we've got is a trough. One of the, um, we've got a trough for where the wheel would have sat, and then we think we've got a trough for where the drive shaft would have sat. And all that horrible looking material inside, all those layers, those bands that you can see, I mean, I, we called them swarf when I started, but I'm not sure if that's it's technical. Swarf. Yeah. Um, and they're just a layer of swarf, which is basically built up over time as he's grinding away, grinding away. All the waste materials getting thrown. Every so often they'll give it a clean and they'll scrape it out. But basically it's just layers and layers of it. Um, there, we did find grinding wheels on site, but none sort of in situ or anything. But there's that, and then the workshop where we found some knife handles makes us think that it's probable that they're making the blades here, they're just going across the way, and then they're being turned into cutlery. Do you know why you didn't find any grinding wheels? Chucked them in the river. Mm. That's what they did. You have to throw them in the river. Today, most people just take well, them to the garden. I've got one of them. the river. We put them in the museum. But somebody in the museum now, they don't want any more. So we just used it to make little ways in the river. That's what they did. Mm. They actually just threw everything in the river. Yeah. And um, this is from Shepherd's Wheel in Sheffield, which is basically, I, I don't think what we've got is exactly the same as this, but when I was talking about sort of one trough for the wheel, one trough for the driving gear, what basically mean is, um, there's your drive shaft, pulley, and then there's your wheel, and they're in a trough next to each other. So that's what we think we've got, really. So Trench 2 was really cool because we found a house and a cellar. And I bet you never thought you'd hear that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've ever done... I started in industrial archaeology in Sheffield, so seeing a red brick house with a sandstone cellar is very exciting. So we think it's dating from about the 1830s. We've got a general, or, a, or an alley, or whichever. We've had a lot of debate about what the proper term is. General. In Sheffield, general. Yeah. The house is built, and then basically what we think we get is a division into basically backyards. Cobble surface is built at the back of it, and then northwest corner a number of modern concrete structures, which we we don't really know what they're for. We don't get much of them, and you'll see by photo. They appear to be late in date because they're concrete and they're basically truncating everything else. And we think probably 20th century. I'm using probably a lot basically. I've asked a few people who have done industrial archaeology in Sheffield, and they don't quite recognise it. It doesn't look like anything, so we're just sort of assuming it's far later no, industrial like, stuff. What was the, what, what are you saying is cobble? Are you, are you talking brick, stone? Oh, sandstone. River, sandstone with a bit cobble? Uh, sandstone blocks, sets, you know, sandstone sets. Oh, it's different between sets yeah, and, sets and, and cobble? Um, it's basically a mix. Right. right. Some of it said there's patches. Whatever they've got. There's patches, there's a bit of damage, and then there's a they just stick a, a yeah. couple in it. And there's a there's a grinding wheel in it as well. I think we might even see it on photo. Yeah. Well, the whole of, you know, Callum Island Weir, mm. the whole of the bottom of the weir is made up of huge grand, grindstones to stop it from tipping over. Mm. Because they stopped using 
um, the roundstones at one point and started making them instead of getting them from proper passage. Yeah. So these are concrete structures I was talking about, and we d we don't have very much of them. It's maybe only about three meters into Edge of Trench, and we don't really know what they are. So that's why there is the vague 20th century industrial structures label attached mm -hmm. to them. And um, I'm happy with that until anybody questions the report. So what's that, <laughs> what's that channel there? It's just, it's literally, it's just a channel. So there's no face on the, the two? No, the it's, um, it's all concrete. There's a couple of brick, there's um. Just that's a brick stanchion, yeah. which is earlier. We think that this is a brick stanchion, which is earlier, and then but the rest of it is just concrete. There's no face to it. Um, it's really it's, it's just we don't have enough of it. It doesn't make any sense that there's maybe a gap in between the two pieces. Uh, I wonder if it's not for a beam or something that's going in, and maybe that's a foundation. Because oh, that yeah, 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 something yeah. like that. We don't. Yeah. It is tricky because we've got so little of it that it's kind of like you almost have to be vague. And then this is the more exciting bit because we've got a house. Um, we've got a general, we've got drains running alongside it, we've got the doorstep. And it's really, really interesting and it matches the map evidence from the 1930s and now I think it's the 1853 which is more exact because we even have a wall marked on there that they've got marked on as well. All, most of the pottery from here is very ut um, utilitarian, very domestic, rough, poor wear, and it, there's a big age range for it as well, um, dating from about 1830s, 40s, right up to early 20th century. Um, we dug out the cellar, as you can see, we didn't dig it all out. The top left that you're seeing, we've got coal chute going down into the cellar, it's a sandstone based floor. Unfortunately, we weren't able to excavate it all because all that lovely looking liquid in there, very, very shiny and contaminated and not very nice. So we've kind of kept away from it as much as possible. But if you can look on the, the bottom right, there's an opening on the right hand side, there's no wall. And basically that's where the sandstone steps would have been. But because it's right up against the edge of trench as well, and because of all the contamination, it just wasn't excavated. But usually you would have had sort of a very spiral sandstone staircase. Usually, not all the time. So future excavations. I, I've said in 2016, I should really say at some point in the future, maybe possibly. <laughs> because um, they work at their own pace, I think, the developers. Um, in 2016, we'll be returning to Kellam Island to complete a third phase of the investigations, which will comprise both excavation and historic building recording. We're going to do a small 9 by 9 metre area, basically in the green lane, so we're leaving what is the Horseman Works in that area that we've been talking about and we go into the west and we're basically going if you're so people have seen Green Lane Works, the, the clock tower and the entrance and all the hoarding if you're facing that we're basically just going to be going just in front of it to the right hand side um, that's listed so they're rebuilding re that whole entranceway that's going to be part of the development which is quite good because it is a lovely building hopefully we're going to be looking according from the map evidence we're thinking it's again later half of the 9th century buildings and the historic building recording includes a grade 2 listed entrance and clock tower, a northern range of former offices and buildings and a range of former sheds and workshops. So that's um, an engraving of what green of what it looked like in its heyday. That is still pretty much how it looks to be quite honest. It's all boarded up but um, they are at least protecting it and then just on the left hand side 
it's just where we're going to be. Now apparently they, that's been marked down on some plans as wood, as a wood store. So it's, they're storing, I'm assuming, maybe firewood to feed furnaces or something. I'm not entirely sure. So but it's been... It's it's been so back to the 1920s yeah, and there's nothing on that side. It's marked down as, um, according to the plans, as a wood store. Mm. So whether or not it's, what it's for, we're not entirely sure. <laughs> and there's just some references, because I know that the aerial photo is Britain from above. And they did say on their website, you have to reference them. So britainfromabove.org.uk. Archaeology.co.uk is our website. It's got links to all the community work and, and projects and also workshops so we get people in. I know we've had people from Sheffield University do osteology workshops. So anyone who's interested, I think they're all... Um, we've had buildings, lithics, pottery, illustration. Kay Adelaide illustration, any finds or anything that you may need record, uh, drawing for your PhD. Um, she worked for Elmit and does some great drawings. Time Team Special, I don't know what people's feelings are about Time Team, but in 2004 <laughs> they came to Sheffield to work yeah, with Arcus. Yeah. Um, and they weren't on this site, but if you're interested more about Sheffield Industrial Archaeology, it's, it's not a bad programme. Um, they work with um, a lot of the Arcus staff, um, the county archaeologists, Dinah, Andy Lyons, who's now a county archaeologist, um, and they're doing so, and it's actually some quite interesting stuff that they're actually doing. And it's quite interesting to see two things. One is Tony Robinson trying to keep interested in industrial archaeology, <laughs> which he appears to hate, and Phil Harding almost dying. Yeah. <laughs> he, just, he goes to um, a furnace. He goes to by not being able to get the furnace started. Yeah. How embarrassing was that? He goes. He goes to um, the forge masters. I'm not sure. They went. They went to uh, the. Um, Abbeydale site mm. to try and get it started, but there were so many holes everywhere, it was just pulling air in it and just never got going. It was really embarrassing. Uh, Michael Stewart's dressed in the space gear. <laughs> he goes to, um, I think it's Forge Masters, and as they're messing about pulling massive pieces of hot mail, he does almost. Well, what's um, happening to that, uh, that the last site? What's happening on the, that building on the right? Is that being preserved? That front yeah, yeah, that's um, great to listen. They're oh, going to make yeah. that. Yeah. Entrance into part of the development. Block of flats. Yeah, no, well, all, all behind you now. If you've been down there, they're building eco friendly houses. No, so everything's green, eco friendly, solar panels, and there's going to be a little bakery there. And, and there are actual houses, which is very weird for that area. I used to live not far from there in a flat, and I'm thinking it doesn't really feel like a house area. It feels like a flat area. This is the, the second set, well sorry, the third set of flats for the area. Right, and this is the second developer. This developer is a little bit... The problem is they've, they've got so far building, but they should have been on the third stage now. Right. I can't criticise them because they pay my wages. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing is, I mean... I've, I've had 60 grand off them for a project that we're doing. We're putting the bridge across uh, the Goit. Um, we were going to build a bridge from Kellow Island to uh, Rookland uh, Works, but we were short of £300,000 after the flood, so we're building a little one. So they've actually given us £60,000 for that, which uh, has helped. Mm. And then they're just links to three big industries, well, three big. But the industrial museums in Sheffield, which is Kellam Island, Abbeydale Industrial, and Shepherd Wheel. I mean, it's surprising that for a major industrial city, we only have, we don't really make enough of it. 
because it really was at the for, it really was at the forefront of steel manufacturing. Well, it's, it's all become a trust. Yeah. Uh, it used to be run by the council, and the council looked after it. And then, when they, the disillusionment of the um, metropolitan councils, uh, they could no longer, they weren't allowed to do it. Mm. So they had to be made into trust. That's how Sheffield uh, Museums Trust came about. Yeah. Um, it, it's a shame because it, it's basically putting the begging bowl out to everywhere. Mm. Um, we give them. Well, we shut the, the bridge down that we were going to build across the back of uh, what you've been talking about. Um, we have £400,000 that we gave to the museum to keep it in the area from the uh, Neapsend Mill Owners Trust. So they've had that and they've just had another one to redo the boiler. Mm. Um, so they're doing alright, but yeah. there's no money, unless it's people based, there's no money in buildings for, for, for grants. You've got to put people uh, bit in it to, uh, to get yeah. some money out of it. And that's where they're struggling at the minute. That's why they're doing weddings four days a week. Yes, so that's it basically. I hope you've yeah, learned something and enjoyed yourself. It's not much fun, but you know. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.